Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. During World War II, Allied POWs in the Pacific Theater, whether combatant or civilian, tended to face physical and psychological hardships. Captivity is difficult, and it's particularly difficult when access to food is irregular or insufficient. Food is often associated with a sense of security, comfort, health, and even memory. Thinking about food was often a way for POWs to distract themselves, to stay tethered to their previous lives, and to continue to hope about a future life out of captivity. In early 1942, as the Philippines fell to the Japanese, the University of Santo Tomas was turned into an internment camp for thousands of Allied civilians in Manila. For some of the prisoners at Santo Tomas, recipe sharing was one of the ways in which they coped with the POW experience. Today we're going to discuss this, and we are joined by Jennifer Cottle, a graduate student and the recipient of a grant to study some of the Santo Tomas recipe books preserved in the MacArthur Memorial Archives. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm happy to be here this morning. So give us some background on Santo Tomas. When does it become this POW camp? How many people are there? And what are we talking about in terms of nationalities and ages? And even how is it organized? So Santo Tomas already had a very long history even before World War II. It's located, as you said, in the capital of Manila in the Philippines. And it's actually one of the oldest uh, still existing universities in all of Asia. It was founded in 1611 as a Catholic university when the Philippines were still a Spanish colony. It had royal patronage and was honored by two different popes during its history. According to their website, the college has actually only been shut down twice in its over 400-year history. The first was during the Filipino-American War, and the second was during World War II, when it was made into an internment camp prison. Santo Tomas was converted into an internment camp very shortly after the Japanese Empire invaded in December 1941. The camp was established as early as January 1942, which would have been around the same time that the Japanese uh, took the city of Manila, which was January 2nd, 1942. According to one eyewitness account, the Japanese were going door-to-door in the city itself to collect civilian prisoners and transport them to Santo Tomas within a few days of actually taking over the capital. The internees were what the Japanese called enemy aliens. They were civilians of allied countries who had been living in the Philippines when the country was invaded. The population of Allied civilians at the time has been estimated to be about 8,000 people. By the end of the war, there were four total civilian prison camps in the country, but Santo Tomas had the largest population of all of these, at over 4,000 people at its peak. The campus has been expanded over the centuries, but by the time World War II broke out, it only covered an area of about 50 to 70 acres. According to one 1942 report, the camp population was mostly made up of Americans who represented all 48 states in the U.S. at the time. A smaller portion of that population came from other countries, including Canada, Britain, and various other European nations, including Spain, France, Russia, Germany, Poland, Hungary, and Greece. Many of the prisoners were family groups made up of parents and children who had lived in the country for a generation or even more. They were people, or the descendants of people, who had came to start businesses or work in the American territory. 
Santo Tomas is not quite run like military POW camps like Cabanatuan. So what is daily life like in Santo Tomas and what is the Japanese attitude towards the prisoners? So the organization of the camps changed over the years and they varied very much from camp to camp. Even though they were guarded and restrictions were enforced, Japanese forces left most of the daily running and daily organization of the camps in the hands of the actual prisoners. Some camps, including Santo Tomas, organized civilian committees to act as mediators between prisoners and guards. They also organized departments to oversee activities, including sanitation, medical care, and even education for some of the younger children. There were also clubs and organizations meant to help curb boredom from being imprisoned. There were sports teams, sewing and knitting circles, language classes, even theater productions and choirs. At the beginning of the camp, there were even cleaning competitions where internees could win prizes, like extra food rations or even little treats or handmade crafts. As the years went on and the camp life worsened, the motivation to continue these activities eventually fell to the wayside. There were some rules that were enforced by the guards. Housing was divided by gender, meaning that even male and family members had to sleep separately. Contact with the outside world was also strictly regulated, and that included sending letters out or even letting news in. Some restrictions in some of the camps became relaxed over the years. According to one diary keeper at Baguio, prisoners were eventually allowed to build their own shanties or little huts so families could share their own living space. Other restrictions, however, only tightened. Food especially became more scarce across the country for everyone as the war continued, and camp commandants became increasingly more strict about food and supply rationing over the years. The relationship between civilian prisoners and Japanese guards seems to have been a bit unpredictable. It really seems to depend on who the individual in charge of the camps were. According to eyewitness accounts across all of the camps, some commandants were very sympathetic but others were indifferent or even hostile. There are reports of guards being relatively friendly, especially towards the younger children, but there are also reports of guards being violent and even conniving. One eyewitness in Baguio said she caught guards trying to sell items to prisoners that had been looted from their own homes outside of the camp. Another stated the commandant was intercepting supplies of fresh meat meant for the prisoners so he could have it for himself and his officers. According to some eyewitness accounts, there was also the fear of being accused of espionage. If that happened, a prisoner could be transported elsewhere for violent interrogation to see if they were somehow in contact with the guerrilla movement happening outside. When authority over these camps was transferred from Japanese civilians to the Japanese army in 1944, attitudes towards prisoners became markedly less friendly, and attempts at escape were punished by beatings and even executions. Let's get into food now. What do the Japanese provide the prisoners in terms of food? The Japanese provided very basic food stuff throughout the war. It was mostly staple items like rice, vegetables, occasionally fish. Food provided by the Japanese was not diverse, but it was at least relatively abundant at first. That started to change by 1943 as food prices in the country skyrocketed and became increasingly more dire by 1944. By the last month of internment, food had become so scarce that prisoners were being given a ladle full of watery rice porridge with a cup of hot water, a bowl of thin soup, and a small serving of stew made from rice, beans, and just a little sweet potato. This was considered a full day's ration of food. Most of the food that internees were getting, even at the beginning of their internment, were things that were coming from other sources outside that the Japanese were providing. 
Those were providing much of the actual nutrition and diversity in diet for the camp inhabitants. When war continued and getting access to outside food sources became harder, and then impossible, that's when the situation in the camp started to get increasingly more desperate. You mentioned some other sources of food for the prisoners. What are these other sources? Where are they getting this food from? So in some of the internment camps, the civilian prisoners were allowed to actually send out for food. And this is where a gap actually starts to form between economic classes inside the camps. Those who had more money could obviously order food and supplies to be sent to them inside the camps, almost like a delivery service today. There's also a time frame towards the middle of the war when some camps had a small store saw operated by outside civilians with special permission from Japanese guards to come in and sell prisoners items like food, toiletries, clothing, etc. As the war continued, prices for food and supplies started to increase. Some items, including sugar, would eventually go for as much as 10 times their pre-war cost. As camp rations decreased, people became more and more desperate for food, and those who could afford it started to pay very exorbitant prices for very basic sustenance. When this cash ran out, they started to pawn any jewelry they kept with them. Eventually, it didn't matter how much or how little money internees had, because food had become so scarce that there just wasn't any left to buy. Many of the internees also had friends or former employees within the local Filipino communities who would send them care packages with foodstuffs or items that they were able to save from their own homes. There were also Red Cross packages being sent from Britain and the U.S., which would contain non-perishables. However, most eyewitnesses report that these Red Cross packages arrived very few and very far between. Towards the end of the war and around the time camp authorities shifted from Japanese civilians to the Japanese army, restrictions became much tighter, to the point that packages were not allowed to be sent to the internees, period. Within the first few months of imprisonment, the Japanese authorities started to encourage prisoners to grow their own food within the camps. Usually seed for these foods weren't provided by the Japanese, but they had to be purchased by the prisoners themselves, sometimes through some kind of money pulled together by the camp inhabitants. Santo Tomas itself had a vegetable garden grown on the campus grounds, and most of the produce started to incorporate local vegetables, including sweet potatoes or leafy greens. At least one camp, Camp Hay, had a rice paddy for the internees to work. Some of the camps had the room and the funds to buy even one or two cows for milk and sometimes chickens for the eggs. Milk and eggs were actually some of the most sought-after and valuable food items because they were fairly nutrition-dense and they were set aside for children or for the ill or elderly. You've been studying a small collection of recipe books put together by a family that was interned at Santo Tomas. Tell us a little bit about this. Uh, Yes, the Kearns. The Kearns were an American family of three people. They first came to the Philippines in 1937. They had been hearing wonderful things about the country from friends and family who had gone to the Philippines before them. According to the oral history of the mother, Thelma Kearns, they were all extremely excited when her husband was offered a job there. They settled in Baguio and were very happy and comfortable living there up until December 1941. When news came that the Japanese invasion forces had arrived, the Kearns made their way to the capital at Manila because they had been told it would be safer and they were able to shelter with friends. They were there when the Japanese forces took the city and one of the families rounded up with other Allied civilians. The Japanese soldiers didn't tell them where they were going or why, only that they should pack enough for a four- to five-day stay. 
Then they transported them to Santa Tomas University, which had been converted into an internment camp. They were imprisoned in this camp until it was liberated in February 1945. The Kern's daughter, Karen, was only nine years old when they entered the camp. Can you give us a sense of why the Kearns were putting together family recipe books while they were interned at Santo Tomas? Was recipe collecting a very common practice among POWs? Why are they doing this? Recipe collecting was definitely not just happening at Santo Tomas. It was happening kind of across a lot of the prison camps throughout World War II, not just in the Pacific, but in Europe, too. And it's not something that's been researched hard by scholars, but there have been a couple of different theories posited by those who have studied it behind the reasons why people feel driven to recipe collecting. Dealing with hunger and a lack of certain foodstuffs that you're accustomed to was definitely part of it. One survivor of a Japanese hell ship and later a labor camp described recipe collecting as part of what he called food fantasies wherein the POWs were being worked and starved and beaten, would gather together in those few quiet moments of the day to talk about their favorite meals from home. They would have been eating very thin broths with a few vegetables and some rice mush, but would reminisce about times before the war when they would be eating things like cream puffs or tamales, or even really thick sandwiches with all kinds of different fillings. Survivors of concentration camps in Nazi-occupied Europe described experiencing something similar, One article on the subject termed it fantasy cooking. For imprisoned people who were slowly starving, recipe collecting was a kind of escape from reality that they were having to face every day. Thelma Kearns herself states in her oral history that writing recipes was part of a larger obsession among the starving internees with food in general. She states that hunger became so encompassing that food took over every conversation and every thought and that the recipe craze, as she put it, was part of the desperate obsession to remember what food was even like. Thelma states that she was even ashamed that she had filled entire notebooks that had been meant for the internee children's schoolwork with recipes. It's these five recipe books that are in the MacArthur Memorial Collection today. Another theory behind recipe collecting that's been mentioned in different documentation is the idea of leaving or preserving a legacy. This has been mostly attached to recipe books that have emerged from concentration camps in Europe. This is where recipe collecting was thought of as a way of preserving a piece of heritage from a culture that was in danger of being erased. However, I think this also applies to the recipes possibly coming out of the camps in the Pacific. There was a lot of fear among civilian internees that they wouldn't survive this experience, especially towards the end of the war when things were getting so desperate. Writing down these recipes from home was a way of preserving a part of their heritage and family history by passing heirloom recipes from one generation to the next. A third reason behind recipe collecting was that it just gave internees something to do. Civilian internees in the Philippines during World War II were not forced to labor in their camps, and they were more or less left to their own activities by the Japanese guards. At the beginning of their imprisonment, attorneys documented a whole host of activities that I've mentioned, in addition to the daily operations that were meant to help just make the days pass quicker. This included carpentry, teaching and taking classes, music, quilting, putting on plays. Recipe collecting was one of those social activities to do around the camps. Finally, a reason behind recipe collecting mentioned by both internment camp survivors and psychologists is the activity was hope. Sharing recipes with neighbors for them to try 
representative hope for a future outside the camps in which they were free to cook these recipes and have access to these ingredients. One Camp Hay survivor described in her journal how attorneys had started drafting house plans for their homes, houses that they wanted to have after they left the camps. They talked about the ways they wanted to change and expand the homes they had waiting for them in the Philippines. She mentions that most of these plans happened to include much larger kitchens. The drafting of house plans was the same as the recipe collecting, a way to plan for the future outside of this imprisonment. The act of planning itself represented the hope that this future would eventually be realized and that the people would be there to see it when it happened. So hope was clearly a very important factor in terms of survival in a lot of these camps. And you mentioned uh, military POW camps in the Pacific. Do we see this phenomenon occurring in them as well? We do. Uh, Recipe collecting has been documented in other instances outside the civilian prison camps in the Philippines. There's at least two recipe books that I came across in my research from military POWs. One was written by a survivor of a hell ship in a forced labor camp in Kawasaki. Another was published under the title Recipes Out of Bilibid and was written by a survivor of Bilibid Prison who collected his fellow prisoners' favorite recipes from home. The author himself was American, but the book includes British, Chinese, Filipino, and Polish dishes, and the descendants in America, just to name a few. There's also instances of recipe collecting happening outside of the Philippines and other Japanese camps. There's at least one cookbook written by a British civilian who was imprisoned in a Japanese internment camp in China. This book was later published under the title of Lila's Feast. And of course, I've already mentioned that this recipe phenomenon was also happening in Europe in concentration camps kept by the Nazis, including one called the Ravensbrück cookbook. There's also eyewitnesses who survived Soviet gulags in the 1930s and even penal camps in China in the 1960s and 70s who recalled fellow prisoners doing recipe collecting or participating in food fantasies. Wow. Tell us about some of the Kearns recipes that you've studied. So the recipes in the Kearns notebooks are pretty diverse. There's about five of them in the collection in total. And there's a whole range of meals, breads, desserts, beverages, and snacks. Some are obviously meant to be used for dinner parties and entertaining. Some are closer to the budget meals meant to help stretch a dollar. Some were quick to make, while others could take hours. Many are classic American recipes, but others were at least influenced, if not authentic, recipes from other cultures outside of America. As I was reading and making some of these recipes, I started to suspect that a lot of them might have been passed down from previous decades before 1940. There's a recipe, for example, for something called hearty soup, which reads a lot like a Depression-era recipe that my great-grandmother was known to make. It combines a can of pea soup with a can of condensed bean soup, a can of milk, and a can of water, all cooked together with a couple of sliced-up fried hot dogs, which to me just screams trying to make a meal out of nothing. There's also a couple recipes I think must have been from more prosperous times, maybe even going back to the 1920s, which look a lot more like party food. There's a recipe for something called a baked snappy cheese ring, which is basically a steamed cheese spread made with Worcestershire sauce, hot sauce, onion juice, breadcrumbs, mustard, a half dozen eggs, and some grated cheese. It sounds pretty rich and like something you'd serve to a lot of guests when you're not really worrying too much about a budget. There's also a couple recipes that we would classify as slow cooker or fix it and forget it recipes today. An example of this is a recipe called Italarina, which is oh so simple. 
It's just browned ground meat with tomatoes, corn, green pepper, some garlic, and onion. And it's all thrown into a pot and left to cook for about three hours. I made this one and it tastes like a better version of Hamburger Helper. There's also a full page devoted just to different sandwich fillings. There's at least three different homemade ice cream recipes and several different cake recipes. There's also a couple of what we would call mock recipes. And these were a kind of recipe that were pretty popular on the home front during World War II when food rationing was happening. They were recipes meant to approximate the taste of one kind of food while substituting it for another. Usually these were foods that were hard to get because they were being rationed at the time. A mock cherry pie, for example, cooks cranberries in a way to make them taste like cherries. Similarly, a sham lemon pie uses rhubarb as a substitute for lemons, while mock whipped cream uses egg whites mixed with sugar, melted butter, and vanilla to try to make a substitute for any cream. A few recipes were also influenced by other cultures. There's a recipe for Filipino babinka, which is a rice flour cake. There's also banana fritters, and a small section devoted to Chinese desserts, including a recipe for making almond tea. There's also Indian rice pudding made with coconut milk, pistachios, almonds, and rosin extract. And also a recipe for Turkish paste, which, when I made it, turned out to be a recipe for Turkish delight, which is one of my favorites. So part of your research involves cooking, and you've been telling us about some of these recipes that you have made, and it's very experiential. So how do you think making those recipes enhances the work you do as a historian? I've always liked food and cooking. It's one of those aspects of humanity that everyone has in common. It goes beyond time periods, locations, and cultures. It's also one of those few aspects of history that people can really experience for themselves. You can't exactly go back in time to Valley Forge to see George Washington with the Continental Army, but you can try making his favorite breakfast of hoe cakes and coffee, because his cook actually recorded how she made them for him, and we have that documentation today. Maybe you can only read about 1940s America, but you can try making a mock cherry pie using cranberries, because canned food was on ration during World War II. It really helps you get into the mindset of the time period you're learning about. You know that food rationing happened during World War II, but trying to make a cake with a can of tomato soup might make you understand a little better how difficult it was trying to make a simple meal when everyday items we might take for granted, like eggs, milk, and sugar, just weren't readily available. In the case of recipes from the context of an internment camp, it's been pretty bittersweet. These were someone's favorite meals, or in some cases they were meals that someone decided they wanted to try in the future. It's interesting to see what dishes or meals people may have been daydreaming about, but it's a little upsetting to know that they were daydreaming of food in the context of not having enough. I've tried making recipes from a wide span of time periods, but this is the first instance where the recipes were not foods being eaten, but foods the subject of fantasy by a group of people who were slowly going hungry. And that knowledge kind of brings some levity to the understanding of the subject. Well, it's an absolutely fascinating window into the POW experience, for sure. Do you have any favorite recipes? Um, was there anything that was just really, really terrible, on the other hand? I've tried quite a few recipes from both the Kearns and a couple of other sources from the memorial, including our newspaper collection. 
I'm always looking to try the ones that sound a little unique, and there have been several I've found to be actually pretty tasty. Uh, there's a recipe for sour cream pie that I wasn't sure would turn out very good, but was actually pretty amazing. Um, there's also a recipe for a beverage that's listed as a midsummer treat, and I just keep making it over and over again. Um, there's also the Italarina one that I've mentioned before that I've just made a couple times already. And um, I've also brought in the banana oatmeal cookies a couple times for the museum staff, and everyone has always been very excited when I announce I've brought them in. Most of the recipes have turned out pretty good, but uh, there's a couple that I wasn't sure about when I was reading over them. Uh, there's only one that comes to mind that I made that I couldn't even finish eating, and that was a recipe for a lemon avocado salad. It's just cubed avocado with lemon-flavored gelatin and some whipped cream on top, and I'm not an avocado person, and I, I just couldn't finish it. There's also a recipe in there for a banana cake, which I was initially very excited about, um, and that one actually had some ingredients missing, so it, it didn't turn out into a, a cake at all. It just became a very flat something. I'm not entirely sure what I cooked, actually. But for, for the most part, there's a, there's a reason these recipes were getting fantasized about. They were, on a whole, have been very, very delicious. Interesting. Any final thoughts on food and the POW experience? I'm just very grateful that I was able to delve into this part of history. It seems to be a history that was very important to the people participating in it, who are living through it. And it's not something that really gets talked about in the context of the war. And I'm just happy I was able to maybe experience a little bit of it and try to share that story to a larger audience. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. If anyone is interested in any of these recipes that we've been talking about or in the uh, POW recipe books, Jennifer has been putting together a very interesting series on the MacArthur Memorial's Facebook page and Instagram that deal with these recipes, and she will kind of walk you through how you make some of these recipes and then a little bit of the history behind them. So I encourage you to check that out if you're interested in especially the Santo Tomas POW experience. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.